I am so glad that you're here as we're going to study God's Word. I got my phone in my hand because there's a message I want to give you here, and it's in my phone. Um, before I give you the message, I was just, I just sometimes, well, how do I say it? Have you ever looked at your wife or have you ever looked at your husband? Uh, maybe your, your child, and you, and you just look at him. And when you look at him, it's like, man, I love her. Man, I love him. You know, have you ever done that? I, I hope you have. Angie does that all the time about, about Joshua and Jaden and Anna. I, I bet she does. <laughs> you know, I, I was just looking around tonight and uh, when I came in, just kind of looking around who's here and everything, and I saw so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and I, I just thought, man, I love these people. Uh, I, I love this church, and uh, I hope you do too, but, but you guys are very special to me, and I sometimes just want to take the time to tell you uh, that it is my honor and my joy to be your pastor and how much I love you guys. Um, so one word of announcement, uh, good news. Uh, we had our vote today for Chris Metters being our Minister of Missions and Discipleship and the vote was 385 yes and 13 no for a 96.7 affirmation and Chris has accepted the position. Now, we thank the Lord for that and praise the Lord for that, but here's what that means. Basically, it means nothing's going to change right now. Ron's still going to keep doing what he's doing, and he's doing a great job there. Chris is going to still be the student pastor, and he'll continue to do that. And now the search committee will be charged with looking for Chris's replacement, a new student pastor. So while they're looking for the new student pastor, Chris will continue to be the student pastor, and Ron will continue with missions and discipleship. And then once we get that new guy, and then Chris can move to the other office. So that's kind of where we are, and I just want to give you that report, and uh, thank you for praying with us through that time. All right, I hope you've got your Bibles. Ephesians is where we are. We started a, a new study through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse. And we kind of introduced it to you a couple of weeks ago, then, then uh, last Sunday night we got the first two or three verses, and tonight we're going to pick up there and, and continue on. I hope that you've gotten an outline, and we've tried to make those available to you. Uh, I want to go back and rehearse just a little bit, just a moment, because I, I want to tie it all together for us. Uh, I told you last time that verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek language is one long sentence. If you were to read it in the Greek New Testament, that, that whole section, verses 3 through 14 in your Bible, is one long sentence. And I said, it's as if Paul began to write about what God has done for us and couldn't stop. He put one phrase after another, after another, after another, to describe what God did for sinners like us. And what we find in, in verses 3 through 14 is that all three persons of the Trinity we're involved in our salvation. All three parts of the Trinity, or persons of the Trinity. And I outlined this for you last week. Some of you didn't get all of it, so I'm, I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm rehearsing this. Let me tell you what the, the, the role of the three parts of the Trinity was. Verses 2 through 6 describes the will of the Father who decided to save you. And I'm going to take the time, because some of you didn't get that last week, so I want to make sure you get it now. Verses 2 through 6 describe the will of the Father who decided to save you. Verses 7 through 12 describe the work of the Son who died to save you. Now, if you're looking on your notes, there's not a place to fill in the blanks there, okay? This is giving you information from last week. 
Verses 7 through 12 describe the work of the Son who died to save you. And verses 13 through 14 describe the witness of the Spirit who declares that you are saved. The witness of the Spirit who declares that you are saved. So that's the role of of the Trinity in our salvation. And what we're going to do tonight is to kind of dig into that. And so I want to talk to you about God the Father who relates to us in a personal way. I want to start there. And I told you last week that Perhaps the greatest description in the Bible of God is where the Bible uses, uh, in many different scriptures, the Bible refers to, to God as our Father. And I told you last time that that was primarily a New Testament reference, that there's only two, maybe three places in the Old Testament where God is referred to as Father. Uh, he's revealed as, as Creator, as Elohim, as Adonai, and Jehovah, and all this in the Old Testament. But when Jesus came... Jesus revealed that God is not just Adonai and He's not just Jehovah, but Jesus said, when you pray, start like this. Our Father who art in heaven. Which was an amazing concept, one that we take for granted, but was something that was absolutely shocking when He said it to those Jews who were so used to referring to God as Elohim and Jehovah and, and those kind of names. So, that's where we were last week. Now, here's the question I want to ask tonight. As our Heavenly Father, what was God's role in our salvation? I've gotten a couple of blanks there for you to fill in. And there's two primary things that God did in your salvation experience. First one is this, A on your outline. He has chosen us. He has chosen us. Verse 4, Ephesians chapter 1. Let's start at verse 3 for just the context. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. He chose us, Paul said. Now verse 4 is... And verse 5 that we'll read in just a few moments is some of the most controversial words in the Bible. Uh, When you talk about God's choosing us, and in a moment we'll see the word predestination, those words are volatile words in our community and in our denomination. Uh, When you talk about Calvinism or Reformed theology and and all of those kind of things, those have become hot-button issues in our convention. Uh, verse 4 talks about the doctrine of election. And, and folks, we're not going to resolve all of that tonight in any stretch of the imagination. It has confused and confounded people for centuries. Uh, we are not going to go very deep into the doctrine of election, but we are going to touch on it because it's in Ephesians 1. And I'll be very, very clear on something. Listen, please, listen. Listen, please, listen. You ready? My goal tonight is not to teach you or talk about Calvinism. My goal is to teach you Ephesians 1. We are not here tonight to debate Calvinism. We are here tonight to to learn from Ephesians 1. So that's going to be our goal, and that's going to be what, what we'll talk about. Now, will we refer to Calvinism very briefly? But, but my ultimate goal is to talk about Ephesians 1. I do want to make one or two comments about Calvinism before we get into Ephesians 1. 
Uh, first of all, I want you to know that I've got friends on both sides of the fence. I really like what Frank Page said about Calvinism. He said, and I quote, I'm not a Calvinist, but I'm not mad at those who are. I thought that's a pretty good description of how I feel. I'm not a Calvinist by any stretch of the imagination. I am not a Calvinist, but I'm not mad at those who are. In fact, I work with some guys that I would consider to be Calvinists. Some of them are some of my best, closest, dearest pastoral friends. Uh, so, I just want you to know that I am not here tonight to beat up on Calvinists or anything like that. I'm just going to try to teach you what I understand the Word of God to say in Ephesians 1. But, according to those who, who believe in Calvinism, they believe that God chose some individuals to be saved and others to be damned, and that we basically have nothing to say about it. Uh, our final destination, whether heaven or hell, is decided by God, they believe, not only before we get there, but it's decided before we were even born. Uh, they say that if you're, one of your, if you're one of the elect, you'll go to heaven. And if you're not one of the elect, you'll go to hell. And God has predetermined who those people are. He's predetermined who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. Now, in my estimation, that is not an accurate description of what the Bible teaches. I believe that if people are eternally condemned, they are eternally condemned for one reason. It is because of their refusal to trust Christ as Savior. And I want to show you that in Scripture because I don't want you to say, well, that's what Keith thinks. Well, I want to show you what I believe the Bible says. Uh, go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verses 18 through 21, if you're taking notes. This is kind of extra. It's not a place on your notes. You might want to just jot down the reference. John chapter 3, verse 18 through 21. I'll tell you what, let's start in verse 16. Uh, verse, you, you know John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that... What's that next word? Whoever, whosoever, believes in him. Now, who is whosoever? I believe it's whosoever. You know, whoever. All right, so whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever, there's that word again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever, there it is again. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever, there's that word again, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. I believe that, that Scripture and perhaps others teach us very clearly, in my estimation, that people are eternally condemned because of their refusal to trust Christ as Savior. And in my estimation, that's the only way that you are eternally condemned. Because of your refusal to trust Christ as Savior. So... I want to summarize the doctrine of election as it pertains to verse 4. 
We're now going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. And and that's all I'll say specifically about Calvinism as such. Uh, But I want to get back into Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And I want to summarize what I believe the doctrine of election teaches or what it's about based on what we read in verse 4. Let me read the verse one more time. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Put this on your notes. The doctrine of election, first of all, affirms that our salvation begins with God. The Bible says in verse 4, three very important words. He chose us. The little boy was asked, have you found Jesus? And the boy said, sir, I didn't know he was lost, but I was and he found me. We did not have to go seeking after God, did we? Not at all. He sought us because of His love for us. He came looking for us. Ladies and gentlemen, if you, if you don't hear anything else tonight, please understand this. Salvation begins with God. He took the initiative in, in, in our salvation process. He took the initiative. The doctrine of, of election affirms that salvation begins with God. He chose us long before we ever chose Him. The doctrine of, secondly, the doctrine of election explains that salvation comes through Christ. In verse 4 it says, He chose us, what's the next two words? He chose us what? In Him. In Him. For He chose us in Him, that is, in Christ. How are we chosen? What's the basis of our election? Paul says, the basis of God's election of you, God choosing you, is Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? Well, it means this. I believe it means that God does not necessarily uh, choose these people, but not these people. I believe it means that God decided to choose everyone who chooses Christ. And He rejects everyone who does not choose Christ. Uh, Someone explained the doctrine of election this way. The Lord voted for my salvation. The devil voted for my damnation. I voted with the Lord and we made a majority. I like that. God voted for you. Satan voted against you. You cast the deciding vote. I still believe John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him. D.O. Moody said it this way. He said, The whosoever wills are the elect, and the whosoever wants are the non-elect, and it's up to you. It's up to you whether you're going to be the whosoever wills or the whosoever wants, or the whosoever nots. Someone else described it this way, said on the, and you've heard this, this is a very famous quote, on the door to heaven, from our side it says, whosoever will, whosoever will may enter. And when you get on the other side of the doorway someday in heaven, you're going to look back and on that door it will say, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Guys, I, I can't fully explain to you the doctrine of election. I can't fully explain to you the word predestination. I can't explain fully all of this, and I don't think any of us can. For centuries, mankind has debated these things. But I just want to give you a verse that we can all just kind of celebrate and, and say, thank you, God. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. 
My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now look what it says in verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you get that? He's the atoning sacrifice, not just for our sins. Not just for, in my estimation, a, a certain group of people. But He is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Why does it matter, Pastor? Well, the doctor of election explains that salvation begins with God and it centers itself in Jesus Christ. Now go back to, to Ephesians chapter 1. And the third thing on your notes there, uh, the doctrine of election maintains that salvation is by grace. And I don't know if you've thought about this very much before, but I want you to see what it says in verse 4. He says, for he chose us in him, that is in Jesus. When did he choose us, class? Before the creation of the world. Some of the trans, maybe King James, what, does, what, does your translation say before the foundation of the world? Yeah, both of those are very good uh, descriptions. He chose us. When did He choose us? Before the creation of the world. Charles Spurgeon said, I'm glad God chose me back then, because if He looked at me now, He may change His mind. <laughs> well, that's a humorous thing, except Spurgeon was a little bit mistaken, because God chose us by His grace. And if that phrase, He chose us before the creation of the world, means anything, it means that your salvation is all grace. Absolutely every bit of it is grace. You see, if this choosing took place before the creation of the world, here's what you need to understand. That means I had nothing to do with earning it. If He chose me before I was ever born... And not only before I was ever born, but before you were ever born. And not only before you were ever born, before anybody was ever born. And not only before anybody was ever born, before the world was even created. If He chose us in Christ Jesus before the world was even created, then we had nothing to do with it. We can't earn a sliver of our salvation. How do we get it? It's all grace. It's all grace. My salvation is not dependent on how good I am or how dedicated I am or how religious I am or anything like It's not because I'm a shorter. It's not because I'm religious. It's not because I've got a doctorate. It's not because I try to live good. It's not any of that stuff. Before I ever went to church, God chose me. Before I ever read my Bible, God chose me. Before I ever prayed a prayer, before I knew how to pray, God chose me. Before I ever did a good deed, He chose. Before I ever committed a sin, He chose me. Salvation depends on God's grace, not my goodness. He said, Pastor Keith, when did, when did God first start working in your life? Well, one way I could answer that question is, well, He started working in my life when I was 11 years old. But if I were really to be biblically accurate, I would say He started working in my life before the world was ever created. He chose me back then. 
Not only has He chosen me, number two, He has adopted us as His own. In verse 5, we come to another big word. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. So we come to another difficult word here, the word predestined. It's another one of those words that people can get upset about and debate, and they have for centuries. The word literally means, it simply means to ordain beforehand, or to predetermine, or to decide beforehand. So let's read it. He predetermined, he decided beforehand, he predetermined that we would be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? Warren Wiersbe, a great Bible scholar, made an important point that I want you to remember. And I quote Warren Wiersbe here. He said, The word predestined or predestination is never used in the Bible in connection with those who are lost. Put that on your notes. There's a blank there. He said, The word predestined or predestination is never used in the Bible in connection with those who are lost. Nowhere in the Bible are people predestined to hell, and nowhere are people simply predestined to heaven. You don't find that. In fact, I encourage you to look it up in your Bibles. You don't find that. In the Bible, predestination always refers to something that God does. Put this on your notes. Something that God does for those who are saved. When you see the word predestined in the Bible, in the New Testament, it refers to something that God does for those who are saved. Now, in this verse, if you read it carefully... We are predestined for what? What's that verse saying, verse 5? Predestined for what? Huh? Predestined to be adopted what's, what? as his sons. Now, th- this is about to get really good for some of us. In the biblical world, when a person was adopted, he had all the rights and the privileges as an adopted child, that a biological child would have. Even if that child was a slave previously, if he had even been a slave, when he became, he he or she was adopted, they became full heirs in the family. They completely lost all rights to their old family. And in the eyes of the law, an adopted son was a new person. No longer part of the old family, now part of the new family, and now a new person. And I want you to know that's what God did for you, and that's what God did for me. He predestined, foreordained, that when I believed in Christ and trusted Him as my Savior, listen to this, I would be accepted as His Son. He welcomed me into His forever family. And when He welcomed me in His forever family, He predestined that I would never be part of any other family, but I would always be recognized as one of His sons. And even though I was a slave to sin, God predestined that I'd be treated like one of His sons. He placed me in His forever family. If you truly understand what God did for you, the only thing you you and I could say is this, Father, I owe it all to you. I owe it all to you. 
God, the Heavenly Father, has adopted us and chosen us. Some of you have adopted children. Or some of you were adopted as a child. And I love the phrase of adopted children. I love the phrase, you are a chosen child. Somebody came along and said, I want to adopt him. I want to adopt her. I want them to be part of my family. And that child becomes a chosen child. And if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, every one of you are God's chosen child. And we have to say, Father, I owe it all to you. All of it. But that's just the one person of the Trinity involved in our salvation. Let's talk about Jesus Christ and see what Ephesians says about His role in our salvation. Look at the next verse. It says, well, let's start verse 5 again. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him, that is in Jesus, we have, re- we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. I love that word. That He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Jesus, God's Son, died to meet the greatest needs of our lives. So we we talked about what the Father did in our salvation experience. Now let's talk about what Jesus did. The Bible says in verses 7 through 12, first of all, that He has redeemed us. Now, you see it right there in verse 7. It says, in Him we have redemption. Tell me what the word redeem means, literally. What does that word redeemed mean? Bought back. All right? Bought back. Explain it. Explain the word to me quickly. Somebody. Three, I mean, bought back. What does that mean? You, why do you buy it back? We were bought out of slavery to sin. It's an old illustration, and I'm probably not going to give it to you exactly right, but, but uh, you'll get the, the idea. And I know it's just a story. It, it was not necessarily a, a true thing. But, you know, the story is told of a little boy who built a little ship. And it was his favorite ship. And he constructed it. He made it. It was his. He owned it because he made it. And it was just a little sailing ship. And he had it in the water. And he put it in the stream. And all of a sudden it got away from him. And it got downstream and he couldn't catch it. And he tried to catch it and he couldn't get it. And it just really disturbed him that he had lost the ship that he had made. A couple of weeks later, he was walking through town and he saw in the toy store his ship in the window. It was for sale. Somebody had found it, had sold it to the toy store owner, and now he was, he was going to sell it in the toy store. The little boy went in and he said, that's, that's mine, I made that. And he said, I'm, 
I bought it from an individual. You're welcome to have it if you want to buy it. And the little boy saved up his money and he went back and he bought the ship that he had already created. He had already made. And he took that ship and he was hugging it on his way home. And he said, you're mine now. I made you once and then I bought you back. That's really what God's done, isn't it? He made us. He was our creator. Sin entered the world and destroyed, took away, messed up His creation, separated us from Him. But Jesus Christ met our greatest need. Through Jesus Christ, He, the Bible says, redeemed us. He bought us back. And that brings us to the second thing. Jesus not only redeemed us, it says He also made forgiveness possible. Put that on your notes. Because it says in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now some of you know this. This is not new information, but some of you, this will be brand new information. Do you know what the word forgive means in this context, in this verse? The word forgive here is an interesting word. It means to carry away. To carry away. It, it is a word picture out of the Jewish Day of Atonement. Have you ever heard of a scapegoat? Have you ever heard somebody use the term scapegoat? Well, a scapegoat, that word also comes from the Jewish religious practice. On the Jewish Day of Atonement, the goat would be brought forth before the priest. He'd lay his hands on the head of the goat. And he would confess the sins of this particular person who brought the goat to him. And he would, he would confess the sins and, and, and on that goat. And in, es, in essence, putting the sins of that person on the head of that goat. And then they would send the, the goat away. The goat was the scapegoat. And as, as the goat carried, as the goat ran away, he, in essence, carried away the sin of the person. It was a picture, an illustration of what Jesus Christ would ultimately do for all of us. Because when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. He buys us back. But we have more than just redemption. It's not just that He buys us back and He's always shaking His finger at us saying, you shouldn't have done that and you were so bad, but I bought you anyway. No, no. When He buys us back, we not only have redemption that He bought us back, we have the forgiveness of sin. And our sin is carried away. We no longer have to account for it. We no longer are blamed for it. We no longer have to look back on it. We no longer have to feel guilty over it. Our sin has been carried away. We've been separated from our sin. In fact, the Bible says He separates his, our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. You know how far that is? Pretty far, isn't it? I'll tell you how far it is. It's immeasurable. If he had said he separates our sin as far as the north is from the south, that's a measurable distance. If you start at the north and go to the south pole, eventually you'll get to the south pole and start going north again. North to south is a measurable distance. From the north down to the south, from the south up to the north, it is a measurable distance. But he did not say, I separate your sins as far as the north is from the south. He said, I separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. If you start going east... Guess what? You, you're always going east. If you start going west, you're always going west. You never reach a point where all of a sudden you stop going east and start going west. Does that make sense? 
So if I'm always going east, I'm always going east. If I'm, if I'm going west, I'm always going west. Just, just get on the globe sometime and do your finger like that on the globe. East, west. That's how far He has separated our sins from us. As far as the east is from the west. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then thirdly, it says Jesus not only made forgiveness possible, but number three, Jesus has revealed God's will to us. Verses 8 through 10, here's what it says. That He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding and has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, I'm going to summarize all that we read there in just one sentence. But before I give you the sentence, I need you to figure out what that word mystery means. What verse is it in, the word mystery we just read? Verse 9. And He has made known to us the mystery of His goodwill. That's a key word in that text. He's made known to us the mystery of His will. Do you know what the word mystery means? Can somebody tell me? A story untold. That's good. Find out later. That's good. Hidden. Yeah, that's good. Secret. You might call it a divine secret. A mystery in the context of the Bible like this, the mystery of salvation, uh, it, it, it always means this. It means a divine secret that has been revealed. A divine secret that we never could have figured out on our own. A divine secret that we never would have known unless, unless somebody said, I've got to tell you something. I know a secret. Have you ever had anybody tell you that? Hey, I know a secret. Come here. I know a secret. And you didn't know it. And you would not have known it unless somebody said, Frank, I know a secret. Somebody revealed it to you. When Jesus came to the earth, you know what he was doing? Jesus was saying to everybody, Becky, I know a secret. God's up to something big. You don't know about it yet. But I'm going to explain to you what God's about to do. And Jesus was saying, Disciples, come here. I got a secret. I know a secret. And it took him a while to figure it all out. And he kept trying to explain it to little by little. He kept kept trying to unveil that which had been hidden for centuries. Kept trying to unveil that which they did not understand. When he died on the cross, and they put him in the grave, they still did not fully comprehend the secret. Even though he had told them, about his death and his burial and resurrection. I'm about to preach my Easter message. But on Easter morning, on Easter morning, 
when the tomb was empty, and then they saw his resurrected body. This is the secret. Salvation is possible for anyone and everyone, and it is no longer a secret anymore. Now, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let everybody know what the secret is, because now it's no longer a secret. So Jesus, here's my sentence to, that I told you I was going to give you. God's plan is the plan of redemption That Jesus made known to us. That's the mystery. God's plan, the plan of redemption, was the plan that Jesus made known to us. We could not, would not have figured it out on our own. All right. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit and His role in our salvation. The Holy Spirit is God's promise. Say God's promise. The Holy Spirit is God's promise that we are His. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. The Bible talks about being marked in Him with a seal. A seal in that day, many times, was simply a, if you were to send a letter, the, uh, the scroll was rolled up, Wax was put on the edges of that document and, and, and a ring was used to press down into that seal and the document was sealed. And Jesus, or I'm sorry, Paul uses that word picture when he says that in verse 13, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal. Now, the seal signifies four things. Put this on your notes. First of all, uh, I'm talking about the seal of the Holy Spirit. It signifies, first of all, a a finished transaction. A finished transaction. Even today, documents are often stamped to signify completion of that transaction. And the seal of the Holy Spirit means this is a finished transaction. Your salvation is complete You don't need to add anything else. The Holy Spirit is God's seal that you are His, and your salvation is a finished transaction. Number two, it also signifies ownership. Ownership. Look what it says in in verse 13. Having believed, you are marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are what? God's what? God's possession. The Holy Spirit is a seal signifying the ownership that you belong to God. Number three, it signifies authenticity. Authenticity. The believer is genuine. Uh, is deposit guaranteeing our inheritance 
until the redemption of those who are God's possession, it, that you're genuine. Number four, it signifies security. Signifies security. The Holy Spirit abides with the believer forever. And it says, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So, we come now to the end, but we're not quite at the end because i got a question for you that really will help kind of set the stage for the rest of the book of Ephesians. All of these blessings, ladies and gentlemen, did you notice the purpose of all of these blessings? In our mind, we think of the purpose of these blessings, what God the Father did, what Jesus did for us, what the Holy Spirit did for us. We think of all of these blessings as what God has done for us. And that certainly, there is an aspect of that, no doubt about it. But did you notice the real purpose behind these blessings? Huh? Yeah. Look at verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. Verse 6, look what it says. I've got to find, there it is. Let's start in verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. Look in verse 12. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. Look in verse 14. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. God does not save sinners because He pities them. He wants to be glorified through them. To the praise of His glory. Listen, uh, we're going to help you understand what that means a little bit later on in the book. But the purpose of the church is tied up in that statement. For the praise of His glory. Is salvation about me? Yes, but that's a very small, 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 small view of salvation. Salvation is not just about me. Salvation is about the one who has saved me. To the praise of His glory. The church is not just for me. The church is made up, those, made up of those who have been saved by Him. And we are to be a church to the praise of His glory. And we'll outline that a little bit more, dig into that a little bit more uh, in the coming weeks as we look at this purpose of the church that is outlined in Ephesians. Alright, so, God's been good to us, hasn't He? Now, what are we going to do about it this week? Here's... Here's what Paul said in another letter. Paul said, live worthy of the calling you have received. Live worthy. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. You're not just Elohim or Creator or Adonai, Jehovah, though you are all of those. But because of Christ... We can call you our Heavenly Father. And I praise you and I thank you that you chose us. And you adopted us. You wanted us. And then you made a way possible for us to have that relationship with you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And through Him we have the forgiveness of sins and our sins are separated from us. 
are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And then you gave us the Holy Spirit because we worry sometimes if we really are yours. We worry sometimes if this really is true. We wonder and worry how it's all going to end. And the Holy Spirit you gave us as a deposit guaranteeing our relationship with you and the blessings that are to come. And all we can say is, Father... It all comes from you. You deserve all the glory, all the praise, all the honor. May we live in such a way that our lives will glorify you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.